Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A huge ruling yesterday for First Nations children as the federal court decided against the government's claim that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal had overreached. This all has to do with something called Jordan's Principle. We wanted to know more about what this decision means, what led to it, how significant it is. So joining us now is Sarah Clark from Clark Child and Family Law. Sarah, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, can you, so how significant is this ruling yesterday? Oh, this is a complete victory. I I can't stress enough how uh, unbelievably important this decision is, uh, not only to all of the children uh, affected by the decision, but for First Nations rights across the country. This is a, a massive victory. And I know this has something to do with Jordan's principle. What is that? So Jordan's principle is uh, a human rights principle, an equitable principle, a principle of Canadian law that basically says that all First Nations children have the right to access social services uh, that all other Canadian children have the right to access. It's named after Jordan River Anderson of Norway House Cree Nation, uh, who was born in Manitoba with complex medical needs. And it was when it was time for him to leave the hospital, uh, the government of Manitoba and the federal government couldn't agree on who would pay for his in-home care. And so sadly, Jordan stayed in hospital for the entirety of his life, and he passed away when he was five years old, never having the opportunity to leave the hospital. That's terrible. So Jordan, I know it's just it, it, when you and when you talk to kids about Jordan's case, they they really understand right away the unfairness and inequality. If Jordan had been a non First Nations child like my son or any other non First Nations child, he would have received that support right away, and there never would have been a fight, and he never would have had to have remained in hospital. Okay, so that 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 explains it perfectly right there. So just arguing over which level of government was going to pay for this resulted in this poor child staying in hospital. That's exactly right. So we we've been operating under that Jordan's principle for a few years now. So does that does yesterday's ruling then throw that out the window? No. So um what we've been fighting about uh, about Jordan's principle over the last number of years is who gets to decide who is and who is not a First Nations child. So the Human Rights Tribunal ordered that First Nations children are those with Indian Act status or who live on reserve, but government was not in agreement with the Assembly of First Nations and the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society that First Nations children should also include those who are recognized by their their nations and those who have a parent who may be eligible for Indian Act status. So they were trying to restrict uh, who is and who is not a First Nations child for the purposes of accessing services under Jordan's principle. And the tribunal said that those kids should be able to ask for help. And yesterday's ruling says that 
In fact, the tribunal was right, and those children have the right to access services under Jordan's principle. Okay, and the federal government had been fighting the fact that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal had said this, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the other part of yesterday's decision that was also, in my view, a complete victory is that the Human Rights Tribunal had also said that First Nations children who were taken into the child welfare care system under the federal program were entitled to compensation in the amount of $40,000. So that had also been ordered by the Human Rights Tribunal in 2019. The tribunal said, look, these kids have experienced extreme discrimination and harm, and they're entitled to compensation. And the federal government was fighting those children in court with this application for judicial review. And yesterday, the federal court said that Canada was wrong, that the tribunal is right, and that these children who have experienced discrimination are entitled to compensation. Okay, so $40,000 for each of those children. Do we know how many children there are who would be eligible for this? We don't know the exact number. We know that it's in the tens of thousands. And also keep in mind, the tribunal said and the federal court also agreed that the parents and the caregiving grandparents are also entitled to that compensation as long as they were not uh, abusing their children or hurting the children that were in their care. So part of what this has all started from was just the underfunding and the discriminatory approach that the federal government was taking to those who were receiving child welfare services through the federal government's program. What the Uh, What the Human Rights Tribunal said back in 2016 was that these kids were never given a chance to stay safely in their homes. The federal government was not funding prevention services in a culturally relevant or non-discriminatory manner. And so that's why a lot of these kids were taken out of their homes. And that's why they're entitled to this money, because they never had a chance, as other Canadian children did, to stay safely in their homes. Will this change things moving forward, Sarah? Like, Does this set up new rules then that have to be followed? So it doesn't change the rules, so to speak. For Jordan's principle, it does broaden uh, the scope of those who can ask for help. Uh, But in terms of how we move forward, we're not done. Uh, The case remains ongoing before the Human Rights Tribunal. There are a lot of different issues uh, that have to be addressed. And we are hoping uh, that our work on the long-term reform of both Jordan's principle and the child welfare program will result not only in stopping the discrimination from going on, because one of the things the federal court said yesterday is that the discrimination is ongoing, so our work is not finished. Uh, But we need to build a system that actually ensures that the discrimination doesn't happen again, that more families and more children will not have to seek recourse through the courts, that in fact will build a program that is equitable, fair, culturally relevant, and ultimately non-discriminatory. So that's really the work that has to go on. In the immediate term, I can say that we are all holding our breaths. We are all hoping that the federal government does not appeal this decision that came down yesterday. Uh, They may. They have 30 days to decide whether or not they will appeal and continue fighting First Nations children in court. But that is the last piece of the puzzle on this part of the case. We have to wait and see what happens. Okay, so the work that needs to be done, like where where does that start? Is that something that the federal government has to say, okay, we're going to change this? Like, how do we change that? 
So one of the amazing things about this case is that there are so many smart people working on this issue. I can't stress that enough from Dr. Blackstock to those at the Assembly of First Nations and all their partners and supporters across the country. There are very, very smart people working on this problem. And in fact, the federal government has partnered with the AFN and the Caring Society to look at how to fix this problem. And they have been doing some research. There has been an independent research body who's been looking at how to reform the child welfare program and there's been other work being done on how to make sure that Jordan's principle is delivered in a culturally relevant way. That work is ongoing and we're hopeful in the next little while that we will be able to come together and actually present to the Human Rights Tribunal a system and a completely you know, reorganized way of delivering these services to children in a non-discriminatory way. So it remains to be seen whether or not we'll be able to do that on consent, but that work is ongoing and the tribunal has really urged the parties to work together. And so we hope that that will be something that comes up in the next little while. You know, Sarah, this story really gets me because it seems so simple, doesn't it? Child needs services, child gets services, and yet that's not happening if it's a First Nations child. You know, I have to say, when I started working on this case in 2007, I wasn't a lawyer. I was a summer student. And I really thought that as long as we could give the government the evidence that this was happening and solutions to fix it, that they would really do the right thing. I honestly, naively believed that. But what has you know, what has been made clear to me over the last number of 14 years that I've worked on this case with, with others like David Taylor and Anne Levesque and all of the lawyers who have worked on this case over the years that for some reason there's something happening within the federal government that they're not able to put in place solutions. Uh, maybe this case is going to change that. Maybe today being the, you know, the day of national truth and reconciliation, that we're finally starting to realize as a country that we can't treat First Nations children in this way. We have to stop discriminating. We actually have to lift them up and listen to their voices, listen to their families and their communities. So maybe we are turning a page today. I really am hopeful um, that we can take this in a new direction. And yesterday's ruling is at least, at the very least, a step in the right direction. Well, Sarah, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to explain it to us this morning. appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And thanks for, for caring about it and talking about this today. I really appreciate it. Anytime. That is Sarah Clark, Clark Child and Family Law, talking about the ruling that came down yesterday. And it was a big one, as Sarah just explained to us, federal court deciding against the government's claim the government was claiming that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal had overreached. And the federal court says, no, no, they did not. And you should be abiding by their ruling. Question is, will the federal government appeal? We will continue to follow this. This is Mornings with Simi. This week, Premier John Horgan revealed plans to electrify the province. And they actually mean that literally. It's a five-year plan expected to cost more than $250 million in the hopes that we will transition away from fossil fuels. So what does this involve and could this actually work? Well, here to talk about what he thinks of this plan is climate scientist, former BC Green Party leader, current professor in earth and ocean sciences at the University of Victoria, Andrew Weaver. Thank you for joining us this morning. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. What did you think about this plan? Well, in, in fact, this is uh, something we've been pushing when I was in politics and, and our party when I was in politics for quite some time. Uh, obviously, I'm very supportive of it. And it's, uh, it, it's uh, the direction we, we frankly need to take. What do you think is the, what are the important parts of it here? Like, is this going to be difficult for people to get on board with, do you think? Or will it be natural? 
I don't think so. One of the things, you know, we have here in BC, unlike most jurisdictions, is we have access to bountiful renewable resources. Uh, What BC Hydro is doing on a short term, we have to start thinking about long term, is trying to find new markets for its its power. Uh, The key thing there, from, from my perspective, is being able to use our natural resources to attract industry. And this is one of their flagship kind of proposals, too, is to to try to uh, attract two brownfield sites that exist uh, across BC industry. Now, you might example, might might imagine, for example, Burrard Thermal, which is uh, a form of gas uh, electricity produ- producing facility in in the Metro Vancouver region. That's a brownfield site that's got power lines to it. Uh, same in Squamish, there used to be a brownfield site there. So, so there are some brownfield sites that could be used to to attract. Uh, 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 industry there, and, and this is what other jurisdictions have done, like Washington and Oregon have, have used uh, their bountiful renewable resources to attract industry who are trying to brand themselves as green, and it's a win-win for everyone. So how will the average person notice this then? So the average person will notice this for a number of things. BT Hydro is rolling out uh, electrification of the transportation sector. There's really three pillars. Transportation is one of them, and buildings is another. And and uh, with the transportation sector, uh, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're rolling out charging stations. So you'll start to see that become a, a social norm to see fast charges everywhere. Uh, heat pumps, they're really going all in, trying to get people to switch to heat pumps. Uh, the beauty of a heat pump, of course, is you not only get heating in the winter, you get cooling in the summer. So I think uh, based on this past summer, they're going to be a pretty easy sell. Uh, there, there's uh, you know, who knows where we're going to go down. There, obviously, there's push to electrify the natural gas sector. Frankly, I think that sector's in its uh, final death throes anyway. So it's uh, I, 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 I like much more the, the notion of attracting business here. And uh, uh, yeah, so it's it's right. all in all, it's, you know, those three pillars: the homes, the transportation, the industry. Trying to use the electricity is, is a means and ways to actually uh, reduce emissions here in BC. Right. I notice they're also pledging to more than triple the number of fast charging stations for electric vehicles by 2025. That's pretty ambitious. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I, obviously, as an electric vehicle owner, I'm pretty happy about that. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's important. If we want people to use electricity, we have to make it easy for them to do that. And, uh, you know, you might imagine that the key areas here, because the, the new cars are, are, have much longer range, the key are the highways, and that's where BC Hydro is spending a lot of effort. It's also, uh, you know, working in partnership with places like Petro Canada, who are stepping up uh, charging stations as well, and, and, and with the home heating uh, as well. So there, there is a huge potential here. Um, and what because BC Hydro has dams, which, which, which allow them to determine when they want electricity as opposed to intermittent power, they're also able to play arbitrage with the U.S. and uh, stabilize some of their load. Uh, in particular, California has too much solar in the day, so BC Hydro could use its water in the day to uh, uh, let the, jar- the dams recharge in the day, buy the cheap solar, and then let the dams give California its energy at night. So there's lots of opportunity here for, for everyone in terms of, and the more markets BC Hydro has for its power, the cheaper the rates for the rest of us. So is that the key then, do you think, Andrew, is the fact if we can make it, easy for people like if you tell people we're gonna pay you we're gonna help you switch your heating in your home do you think people will go for it i i think so i mean it's uh, it's very com- uh, uh compelling that the notion i mean i tell you the, the this past summer uh trying to get cool was 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 a big issue and i can also say that as a climate scientist uh, that's not going away anytime soon so, so the, 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 they're very appealing from, from a summer cooling slash winter uh, warming. They're very efficient. 
and uh, you know it's uh, they're very clean. So so I I, I do see that. You know I I think what we're going to find if it's not going to happen within the next couple of years, within the next decade for sure, is that we will no longer allow natural gas to, to be burnt in homes and new builds. We're going to have to switch to renewable natural gas. We're going to have to move to electricity being the norm yeah. for heating, and, and, and it's just time. What do you think about renewable natural gas? This is something I've talked to Fortis about this. It is fascinating to me uh, how they are moving into this. Is that a good way to go? Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I uh, have uh, 100% renewable natural gas. I buy it. Uh, it pay, I pay a premium, uh, but then I don't pay the carbon tax when I do that. Uh, it is a good way to go because you can actually partner them with the agriculture sector because of most of the renewable gas comes from decomposition of uh, organic matter, matter, and a lot of that can come either from like landfills or the agriculture sector. So there's real opportunity for for supporting our agriculture sector too, both in the production right. of renewable energy, but also in terms of, uh, uh, you know, other areas as well. Right. And the demand is there for that, isn't there? Because my understanding is they actually have yeah. a waiting list of people who want to pay that premium and have renewable natural gas in their homes. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I, uh, there are juris- big jurisdictions. Let's suppose you're a big uh, uh, a college or something like that, and all your, your emissions are uh, associated with a district heating system or something. If you switch to renewable immediately, um, you go to zero emissions because the renewable gas is just that renewable and you get a, you don't pay the carbon tax. However, uh, TELUS is also thinking about my understanding, not TELUS, sorry, Fortis, adding some hydrogen into the stream as well. And that's also pretty cool because hydrogen, of course, is not, is just two hydrogen atoms bound together. And when that's combusted, uh, only water is produced. So this is something that clearly BC is very ambitious about. We're embarking on this. One of the things I get from a lot of people who are skeptical, Andrew, is that they say, well, what is the point if we are the only ones who are, are doing this? How do you combat that argument? Ah, le- leaders lead. Uh, they don't w- wait for others to lead and then follow. And those who lead have the benefit of leadership, which is uh, you, you're the one developing the solutions and you are able to then market those solutions to others. You know, it, it's, very, it's, it's very tough uh, to tell other people what to do uh, if you're not willing to lead yourself. And I think what we're seeing here, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I know this from working very closely with uh, the government for, for quite a number of years, um, is we're seeing a real commitment here. And that, that to me is quite exciting. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Andrew Weaver, former BC Green Party leader, climate scientist, professor in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria, talking about this plan to electrify the province that was announced by Premier John Horgan earlier this week. They're spending more than $250 million to make this happen. They'll be doing things like uh, tripling the amount of fast charging stations in the province by 2025, Offering rebates and encouraging people to switch their heating in their homes to heat pumps, you know, pushing up the use of renewable natural gas. There's there's a whole raft of measures that they are introducing there with the aim being to make it seamless for you or me to say, yeah, I I can do that. I, I can make that switch. The question is, will it be effective? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Today is the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, which means it's a good time to reflect on and learn some things that you may not have known about our history, in particular, 
about Indigenous place names and why it's important to know the history around them. So we thought, let's talk about that. Let's talk about language revitalization and place names. Joining us now is Christina Gray, an Indigenous rights lawyer and scholar at JFK Law Corporation. Christina, thank you for being here. Morning, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Have we made strides, do you think, when it comes to recognizing Indigenous place names? Yeah, I think in the last year, year and a half, um, and even longer, I've seen so much or so many strides in terms of the recognition of Indigenous place names. But like the work has been going on for quite some time. But in the last year and a half, I have to say I've heard a lot more about it, especially within this this year, especially. Right. Do you think we've turned a corner on that? I know that that's, that's kind of a hot topic as well, and just that we're not just doing this momentarily. Are we actually turning a corner on this? That's a great question. And I think that, like, how big is the corner? Um, so I think that a corner has been taken. I think that there's a lot more work to be done in that regard. Um, like, these Indigenous places have existed since time immemorial, and um, they are places that are spoken about by Indigenous nations, but there also needs to be the recognition by provincial and federal governments. And so, as I know it, that there's many different negotiation tables ongoing between the Canadian and federal government with Indigenous nations, but we also need to see that recognition on the other side um, so that Indigenous people don't have to continually fight for it. and um, only be known by those names by them. You know, Christina, what I find amazing about this is that there have been, you know, so many, you can see them now on signs, right? Even when you travel, you're driving down the highway, you see the Indigenous place names. And I think a lot of people didn't realize how much the names that they knew really derived from those Indigenous place names. Yeah, I think that's a really special aspect. And especially in North America, it's not just in Canada, but we can also think in, in the U.S. as well and in other places, such as New Zealand, um, where they were also, like the Maori Party this year wanted um, and suggested that uh, New Zealand be changed to, I'm going to butcher the name this morning, um, but Aotearoa. And so I think that would be great if um, there were more names like uh, being spoken uh, colloquially, but also, um, yeah, we do know quite a lot. Right. about Indigenous placing. What are the next steps here for us, do you think? What more can we do? I think that um, in common conversation, we can refer to those Indigenous placings by their Indigenous name and that language. And so in Vancouver, in the Lower Mainland, we can think of, um, say, for example, Stowamish Chief, and that's one where the Squamish Nation had sought um, the change of the name. And before that, people called it the chief, right? And right. Um, so I think that we can just call them by their Indigenous name, but also um, write about it, speak with politicians. Um, and um, I think, like, the more that we call something by its name, uh, Indigenous place name in conversation, the more likely it will um, cause others to actually want to call it and um, say, like, 
more governmental or like uh, yeah. legal terms, right? It, it, it's interesting though, isn't it, Christina, that we are, you know, we're kind of behind the times on this in Canada because this is a discussion that has happened elsewhere in terms of shedding colonial names all over the world. There's all sorts of countries where we, oh, we don't use that name anymore because that's not actually the name, but yet we relate to that here. Yeah, that is, I think that there's, like you talked about, has there been a corner change? Um, has there been a corner turned? And in other places, it is different, right? Like they were more socially um, and politically. Um, there was more social and political movement to change names, and so it's happening here slowly. And I think that it's really important to recognize the work that individuals are doing and nations are doing in terms of um, advocating for those changes of names, but. It doesn't. It needs to be done in tandem with them, right, and with those nations. Um, but we do need to continue that work as well because there's a long way to go. Yeah. So, what are, what are the next steps in the work that we have to do? Yeah. So, this is a, a really big question, um, and I'm just going to pull up. You know, it's because I had been thinking about it um, yesterday, and just also about like in terms of reconciliation. And um, and language revitalization and education and cultural revitalization. So yesterday I was uh, texting with the managing partner at my firm, Robert James, and um, I had just asked him, like, hey, like, what do you think about what can be done? And so we were having this text exchange about this, um, which I think is, you know, that's what we do in the modern world. We text and um, ask other people and law is deliberative, right? So it's a process of talking with people and um, trying to find out what are creative and interesting answers of how we can get to um, to reclaim these Indigenous place names. So we talked about seriously funding education, including language revitalization and um, cultural revitalization. And so the TRC calls to action number 14 says that Indigenous nations are best in the best place to manage this um, and done by communities. And then also um, there are other things that people can do, or really I think the the government really needs to fund indigenous um, language revitalization. Like that's the first step. It's totally underfunded. Um, What does that mean though? Language revitalization. Language revitalization means that, well, right now think about in terms of indigenous languages that, a lot of people unfortunately say that um, Indigenous languages are dying, that, um, say, for example, my dad was a residential school survivor, and he was fluent in his language. And as a result of that process of um, feeling uh, shameful for speaking his language in residential school, he didn't pass it on, unfortunately, to me, and he passed on what he thought was important, right? But that also means that as a result of um, the impacts of colonization, I don't speak my Indigenous language fluently. So I'm trying on a personal level to learn um, words in both my Somalia Simsian language and um, and also in the Dene um, Chipoyan language. So that's not put on me on an individual level. But there are resources that were put out by the um, Simsian language authority that are of great assistance for me learning. And I have to say... Um, in Prince Rupert, there's a really great resource called Lapsigaget, and 
they have put out so many resources, but it's also the individuals within that um, district and um, the fluent language speakers who are alive, it's put on them, right, to uh, share their knowledge and ensure that um, there's some sort of database and resources available for future people who want to learn the language. And so what that means is that those language language authorities need to be properly funded and Mm -hmm. they have to be run by Indigenous people themselves or in tandem with non-Indigenous people to ensure that their um, language is being shared for future generations. Fascinating topic. Christina, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me, Simi. That's Christina Gray, Indigenous rights lawyer and scholar at JFK Law Corporation, talking about the issue of language revitalization. I do find that so fascinating, right? Just tapping into that resource that is there. And it's a very good topic as well, of course, on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. This is Mornings with Simi. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Are you looking to get a test for COVID-19? Maybe you know somebody who tested positive and you thought, oh, maybe I should get myself checked out too. Well, there's a lot of people out there like that. Problem is, you might have to wait. There have been longer and longer wait times for those looking to find out if they do have COVID-19. We've heard of three-hour waits in Vancouver to waiting a couple of days for appointments in more rural areas. Is the province doing enough when it comes to testing? Joining us now to talk more about this is Mark Tyndall, professor in the School of Population and Public Health at UBC. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Okay, thanks for asking me. Have you heard of stories like this, people having to wait for their COVID tests? Uh, Yeah, I've been following it in the media, so I haven't experienced it myself. But yeah, so I I, I think there are uh, situations where there's uh, long waits for people to get a test. Yeah, and what do you think about that situation now then, the fact that it feels like testing has not ramped up? Well, I think that um, certainly we need to have testing as a cornerstone of our response, and people should be able to find out quickly whether they are positive or not. And uh, I think some of the 
uh, push to get more testing is because schools have opened. And I think a lot of this is uh, concerned parents and, and children. So I, I do think the province needs to uh, increase the capacity for testing. And I, I think they are, they're aware of that and are, are probably working on that right now. But are you surprised that it didn't happen kind of in conjunction with the beginning of the school year when common sense and logic would tell us we're going to get some cases? Yeah, I, I think it did maybe catch the testing uh, establishment off guard a bit. Um, I've been advocating along with other people that we really need to uh, implement programs where people have access to rapid testing. So the idea that you need to, uh, you know, drive somewhere and line up in, a, in your car to get a, uh, a PCR test is probably, uh, you know, um, going to overwhelm the system. And uh, we should be utilizing more uh, rapid antigen testing that uh can either be done uh, easily at uh, at locations or people could even be doing them themselves in their homes. And what do you think is the reluctance that we have had to implement more widespread rapid testing or just to use that rapid antigen testing more? Yeah, well, I think at the beginning um, there was concern in, in public health that they would lose out on their surveillance, that it would be very difficult to keep track of these, these tests that they got out there in the public. Um, that was, I think, one of the hesitations. Um, the tests also initially were designed for uh, nasal pharyngeal swabbing, which uh, is difficult and probably it wasn't uh, designed for, you know, self-testing or home testing. But the, the technology has progressed and the, what we know about these tests now make it quite easy to get uh, get the specimen through an easy nasal swab or even a mouse swab. So, um, the technology has improved, the regulations for these tests have improved, and uh, so I, I think it's really time to uh, get them get them out there. Is there a place for rapid testing? Like, where do you think that would be most effective? Well, uh, you know, from the beginning, I, I really thought that we should be using them much more than relying on, you know, the 14-day quarantine for people that were exposed. I mean, a, a test, um, a negative test, uh, could have, uh, you know, allowed people to get out of quarantine much quicker um, and relieved a lot of the stress involved in that, not knowing whether you're you're positive or not. Um, but right now, I really think to get businesses back in in going, uh, having testing programs would be useful, and uh, schools certainly. Um, and we, you know, we knew from the beginning that uh, a lot of uh, young people, especially, had. Uh, asymptomatic or mild symptomatic uh, infections. And uh, we knew that we were, you know, undercounting the number of cases, especially among youth, just because you weren't getting tested unless you had uh, had symptoms and that somebody took the time to go get a test. So uh, all along, there was quite a lot of uh, undercounting of uh, of infections. Do you think that's happening right now? I, I certainly get that sense too, that is there undercounting going on? A lot of infections that we don't know about. Yeah, certainly. Um, the, you know, especially uh, the, the other thing that's changed, I think, in the calculation of, t- of testing is Delta virus. Uh, so it's really is more transmissible, um, more widespread, and uh, still can be quite uh, mild symptoms are asymptomatic, especially in young people. So I think that there's quite a lot of virus circulating out there that's uh, not counted. Um, The other problem is that, you know, recommendations are if you do have symptoms, you should not be out circulating. And I think uh, a lot of people even are told by their healthcare provider that uh, if you think you may have COVID, uh, 
just lay low. And uh, and a lot of people who probably did have COVID and knew it uh, never got that confirmed or, or tested because they, they just got better on their own. Right. So is it fair to say then that our testing you know system hasn't really kept up with what the Delta variant has done? I think that's throwing a, a you know a bit of a curveball to uh, some of the projections, and also I think we were very optimistic and relying on uh, getting people vaccinated, and that was really the uh, the big backbone. And we've uh, learned the hard way that uh, even getting you know eighty percent of the adult population vaccinated is, has not been enough to uh, to stop the. Uh, uh, you know, stop the increase in spread of the virus. Uh, but I do, I do want to emphasize that vaccines still should be our, the backbone. And we know even with the Delta virus, it's uh, highly effect, highly efficacious. And uh, we continue to uh, want to really stress the idea that people need to get vaccinated. Right, because like we know that the vaccines are doing what they're supposed to do, and that is keeping a lot of people out of the hospital. Right. Yeah, for sure. And reducing, you know, um, you know, reducing transmission also. So people, we know that uh, people who are uh, fully vaccinated can still get the infection, can still transmit the infection, but at a much lower rate. So they, they, it's really important. But, um, you know, unfortunately, I, I think the last uh, last 20 percent of people that are not vaccinated are the the hardest to get vaccinated. And we knew this going in that at the beginning, it would be very easy to get people vaccinated, but there would be uh, a group of people that, uh, that were very hard to convince to get vaccinated. And uh, um, this is what we're dealing with now. So I don't think the numbers of vaccinated people are going to, you know, increase a lot more than they are now. What would you like to see happen? What do you think really needs to happen for us to deal with this? Well, um, I think what's happening with the with the with the vaccine strategy should continue. Um, I think people need to know the their test results and uh, to really open up the possibility for people to get uh, rapid testing and know. And uh, you could just imagine if there was a uh, you know one person at one school age kid who uh, was detected early, uh, that would could really prevent a lot of spread of infection. So if we had testing programs where uh, first focused on any symptoms so uh, parents could get their kids tested really quickly um, and take them you know out of the school system for until it cleared or even having um, if, in places where there was quite a lot of uh, spread that have a regular testing program that uh, detected people early on or people with asymptomatic infection and that could also be used in uh, in businesses who want to get people back it could be used in uh, events where people need to go and that could be a an extra uh, uh, extra safety on top of uh, the vaccine passports well it certainly makes sense to me thank you so much for your time today okay Simi. Have a good day. That's Mark Tindall, professor in the School of Population and Public Health at UBC. He also used to work at the Public Health Office for the province as well. Talking about, we seem to have kind of let testing fall a little bit on the wayside here. We could be doing a better job with testing. And what he says makes so much sense when it comes to the idea of using rapid testing. Can you imagine how much more relief that could provide for the school system if you had more rapid testing in the school system, just knowing, no, I don't have to shut that classroom down or I don't have to shut that school down or no parents, you don't have to worry. You aren't, you know, that wasn't a close case of COVID exposure there. Uh, So why aren't we doing more of that? Those are good questions. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, this has been a significant week for school districts in the province because a couple of them have made some big moves. We know that the Vancouver School Board decided to mandate masks for all kids from K to 12. So now including that K to grade three cohort that had been kind of left out of the previous mask mandate. And now the Surrey School Board has decided to do the same. To talk to us about this, Jordan Tinney joins us now, the superintendent for Surrey Schools. Thank you for being with us. No worries. Happy to be here. What went into this decision? Like, what, what numbers were you seeing? What concerned the school district to say, listen, we have to do this? Well, a, a few things. We started certainly conversations, uh, you know, several days ago about um, watching the case numbers for young children, which we're concerned about. Um, there was the change in the notification process as well, which um, is good news. We, we appreciate that parents are going to be more informed. But, you know, our case numbers are just continuing to rise. Um, and, you know, we are seeing some multiple exposures in schools. We have classes in isolation. And so the board was, you know, wondering what additional steps we can take. And we saw the, uh, the BSV motion. And then um, the board wrote a letter to health asking, you know, some questions and if we could potentially meet. And in between that time, the uh, the provincial order on face coverings actually changed. So there was a, a change to one of the paragraphs that said that uh, schools could go above and beyond or, or add additional measures. And so it was a combination of things at the time. Cases are rising, VSB, you know, really um, setting the bar in terms of, okay, they wanted to, to do that. And then the change in the provincial order opened the door for the board um, the medical health officer then came to meet with us because we wanted to do whatever we do in concert in consult with health and then the board moved forward after that and we also wanted a package we didn't want it to be just about masks we wanted to talk about vaccines and testing kits and notifications as well so uh, we we're very pleased where we ended up at the end of the day so that section 13 then that allows school districts to do this was that not there before was that just recently added it was dated September 28th. So, um, you know, I don't have a copy of the old order, but it looks like it was updated uh, on September 28th and that change was put in. So, um, you know, it seems clear that, that boards could do it if they wish. And so, you know, every context is different. Uh, you know, I looked this morning around the cases in schools for us, you know, when this has probably been a three or four day journey at least. And, you know, when we started it, we were at 52 active cases and we're now at 78. And so, um, you know, things continue to climb yeah. and the board just wanted to make a careful decision. Uh, you must be worried about those numbers then seeing that. Yeah, I mean, and you know, we believe in the measures we have in place. We believe that, that it's great to have children in school. We like how things are going. We've had a good September startup, but you know, the, the flu season is approaching and the board just wanted to, to see what additional measures could could they take? And masks, as we all know, are but one one additional layer. The you know all the same basics: wash your hands, right. don't touch your face, don't come to school when you're sick. All those things are still absolutely critical because we want we want our children to have a good time in school. So when does that take effect? On Monday we'll do it. We want to get our communications in order. So um, so tomorrow we'll send out communications district wide and and find the, the word, right wording and how to inform people and to know what it looks like in schools. And then we'll start Monday. And, you know, we believe for for Surrey in particular, this is not a great leap, that there is widespread masking already. It, the, the BC Centre for Disease Control um, guidelines already encourage mask wearing kindergarten to grade three. It's just, it isn't mandated. So with the encouragement and the consultation with health, uh, the board felt it was the right thing to do. Did you have a lot of support from parents on this, do you think? 
I think so. I mean, it's early days, so it's it's been a long. You know, we met last night, and um, I, I think right now the uh, the support is 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 very very strong. Now, what about the rapid test? You mentioned that this is just one piece, right, of a number of things that could be done here. Rapid tests seem to be another one. Is that something you're pushing for? Yeah, and to be clear, I appreciate the question because the gargle tests that we have, we, we that we're promoting again, we had these in the spring, and we just want to re-promote, make sure people know they're available. Um, I, I think the board would welcome rapid tests. I was listening to Dr. Henry today, uh, uh, you know, explain, explaining, um, you know, her thoughts on that. And so I think again, it, it is a it's a suite of things. And so the more things that we can do to keep schools running safely and keep both our staff and students safe and uh, just learning to live and learn with COVID, the better off we are. How do you envision like the rapid, a rapid test system working? Would that be something that you would use in the event of an exposure? Would it be more of a preventative thing? What do you think would work? Yeah, you know, for me, to be, to be honest, I really don't know. I think when those things, we, we have, you know, weekly or not weekly, regular meetings with Fraser Health where they call all superintendents in the entire region and they pull them together. We have um, our rapid response teams in the regions around British Columbia. So we would look to health and to rapid response teams to tell us, okay, what does this actually look like in schools? And if we were to implement um, rapid tests, you know, how would we actually do it? Do you have some hot spots? Like are there certain areas, certain schools, neighborhoods that you are concerned about? Yeah, it's um, absolutely there. You know, what we're seeing is a shift. Last year, it seemed to, of course, all be about secondary schools. But the shift we're seeing is to elementary schools, which is only natural. That that's where the, the students who are unvaccinated are. Um, but I would also say it's the, the, the current regions of the district that were hot last year are are not necessarily as hot as they were. And it, it really is moving around. I, I think the virus is trying to find where it can go and where it finds a spot. Uh, there it is. So it is... You know, we have a number of schools with cases and we have, I think, seven classes in isolation right now. So it, it is in various places in the district for sure. What is the vaccination take up like for that 12 to 17 year old group? Um, I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I believe it's it's strong. It's about 80 percent, um, close to 80 percent with two doses, I think well over 80 with with one. But for us, we have 30,000 secondary students, right? So if 20 percent of secondary students are not vaccinated, that's 6,000 students in our schools who are not vaccinated. So uh, again, that's why we want to make clinics available so that people can make the choice they need to make. And um, we know that vaccines are, are a critical part of this, uh, this, this pandemic. And so the more we can do, uh, the better we off we feel we will be. All right. So then Jordan, what do parents in Surrey need to know about what is changing and when? That if your child is in kindergarten to grade three, they'll They'll need to wear a mask uh, as of Monday, and for also for parents to look out for information about vaccine clinics coming to areas of the district where vaccine rates are low. Um, if your child is symptomatic, know that you can get a gargle test kit from your school, and uh, we'll continue to um, have notifications as transparent as possible as we watch case numbers in Surrey. Thank you so much for your time. All right, you take care. You too. That's Jordan Tinney, superintendent for Surrey Schools, talking about what is changing in that district. So they are saying, yep, starting Monday, masks mandated for kids from kindergarten right through till grade 12. They have some problem areas. You heard him say it's actually moving around. So yeah, there's some numbers that they are concerned about. We'll be continuing to keep an eye on that.